0: Friends, it is time for the part two of your Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A episode 4 what well, has been a busier week than expected. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our little Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Plenty of questions. We're going to dive in there in just a second. A little bit of fun. I don't know, fun, actually. Now I need to take that back. Not fun for all involved posted yesterday on Thursday, Rick Ware Racing, RWR, which took part in the most recent Indy 500 with Dale Coyne Racing. They posted a little video on the interwebs, which drew, let's see, we'll say some interest, drew some ire as well, mentioning that they will be a full-time participant in 2021 or alluding to such things, using what I know to be, and you all might know to be, a Dale Coin Racing entry in this video, this number 51 entry, just a little teaser of it pulling away. Well, we try and talk about the the behind-the-scenes stuff a little bit here. Uh, If you were going to be a co-entrant, not a primary entrant, but a co-entrant, With a well-established IndyCar team, would you be posting teaser videos before the team has announced what they're doing, who they're doing it with, who may or may not be driving, so on and so forth? Ah, Just telling you, in terms of the processes and politics of how things go down between teams, co-entrants, and so on, you really don't want to get ahead of the team. This usually happens a couple times each year where a sponsor or a co-entrant or something will go early and or go without permission of the team, the major team, and then there's a little bit of, uh, yeah, not super happy conversations going on in the background. But So not the end of the world, but just one of those things where you go, Oh yeah. All right. <laughs> if that's how we're kicking things off, this is going to be a wild ride. So, so what do we know about the video that has since been deleted? <laughs> uh well, that was Dale Coin racing car dressed number 51. Believe this is a car that was air quote borrowed by the Rick Ware Racing team to use for promotions, but this was clearly the car being run by Coin at Sebring. We know that that 51 car Took part in the eighty five hundred with a number of co-entrants and whatnot in August with James Davison driving. James was not driving the car in the video. Pretty solid rumor that Rick Ware's son, the sports car driving, sports car loving, I would say multi-disciplined and talented Cody Ware, was actually the person behind the wheel gaining experience terms of rumors and again i love the fact that yes the video's been yanked which tells you uh, there's been some conversations already uh we've been expecting in this primary dale coin entry differentiating that from the coin with vassar sullivan entry both of which i believe will be announced early next week who will be driving both still expect ex Formula One driver Romain Groschon to be the man placed into that primary Dale Coyne entry had a little bit of question mark on is he full-time is he road and street courses only is who knows but we've believed that he's going to be for the most part full-time if not completely full-time well this Rick Ware racing wrinkle would suggest that maybe Romain is not going to be doing all 17 rounds, that he may indeed be sharing the car a little bit. That's the rumor that I've heard. A little bit with Cody Ware. So could we have two first-time IndyCar drivers in 2021 in whatever number it's going to be, whether it's a 51 or who knows, whatever number it's going to be. I'm sorry, 51, 55. Could it be the 19? Could it be the, jeez, I don't know. I lose track of dale's various numbers but could we see that car being a primarily Roman plus a little bit of cody type deal i'd think that might not be a, a total shocker or surprise if that is what gets announced but again that's a educated guess by a person who came within i think three semesters of completing college so uh yeah the educated part bit of a Question mark as well on the Dale coin Vassar Sullivan side, as we have written, as I've mentioned here in the show, we are expecting the fine, fine young cannibal, fine young driver that is Ed Jones to be making his full time return. Boy, that would make me super happy. <clears throat> Last driverish type note as well have been told we are on the clock. I know y'all been patient with this. We've been on the clock for a while about the mayor of Hinchtown, James Hinchcliffe, and being confirmed at Andretti. I have heard that we could have both coins and the final full-time Andretti Autosport driver confirmed officially next week. So we've also been told this for more than a month of when it could happen. You know, these things sometimes slide, but... If you're a fan of IndyCar and you're looking to see the final couple of of holes filled, I think next week is going to be a good one for news. Last little thing to mention here, we closed on Monday. The Scott Dixon's uh, start-to-finish charity print, that made me super happy. Also made the good folks at Canteen, which is a charity in Australia, that helps and works with teens with cancer and their families. We raised in American dollars uh, eleven thousand and one, eleven thousand and one dollars. Headed to canteen. The vast majority of the bidders on those twenty-five prints have uh, all made those donations, and those prints are headed their way. Still, a couple just uh, covering off the last few to make those donations, but. That translates to something like $14,300 Australian. So got a really, really nice note from the really sweet folks at Canteen and thanked all the awesome people. Paul Zimmerman from the Motorsport Collector, I'd say probably first and foremost because he put so much volunteer time into running the auction. Obviously, the mailing and shipping of all the 25 individual prints, but Uh, he air quote helps with this but it's not help paul in his uh, amazing memorabilia shop the motorsport collector which i have sunk i don't even want to tell you how many of my dollars into for 15 plus years um paul just puts in a crazy amount of effort to make all this happen so huge thank you to him also my pal andy blackmore who I uh, commissioned and asked to put the print, create the print. So yeah, Andy, you're a, a freaking beast. Then the uh, chip Ganassi racing team and all the drivers who signed it. Um, yeah, just good, good folks. And, and so thankful for them to help with this latest charitable endeavor. All right, we're going to get rocking and rolling. Hey, is that a music bed? It is. We're going to get rocking and rolling with your questions of which there are many. I think we can get them done in an hour and a half or less. So let's see if my time prediction skills serve me or fail me once again. Jeremiah Morrell, you are the fine, fine person kicking off the Q&A section here. Also have a related one from Mark Hamilton on the subject of Peretta Autosport. Simona Di Silvestro, Team Penske, and the number 16 Chevy Coming to the Indy 500, uh, we have Jeremiah making a grand statement, I think, speak for many of you. It says, awesome to see the Simona announcement. Tremendous buzz and upside for new fans to get invested in the story. Asks, what does the team makeup look like? Is it going to be staffed by some Penske folks or just equipment and a completely new to IndyCar crew? This will be 100% Team Penske if we're talking the running operation and supplying of the car, could there be the addition of some women on the team side? I'm sure it's possible, and I hope that's the case. But as I originally heard about this, it was presented as a fifth Roger Penske Indy 500 entry. I later learned, as in just when it was being announced that an old pal by the name of Beth Peretta was indeed the entrant for it. But just to give a little bit of background on the approach to this, this is what I'd heard of for more than a month as a straight-up fifth Penske entry. It was going to have a woman racer in the good old hot rod, and this being part of the Race for Quality and Change program, but this being truly a fifth Penske entry, we know that it is now being entered under the Peretta Autosport banner, and we know that there is ambition because they told us so in an interview uh, that they want this to become full-time and such. Exactly how that part works, that's the thing that I want to get a little bit more insight on. Due to capture a long-form interview, with Beth hopefully here over the weekend talking more about her life and career she is an old friend but just doing that more about the totality of her career but in there I do want to ask as well some bits about the future Jeremiah and hey you certainly wouldn't want to turn away uh, team Penske engineers mechanics over the wall pit crew all those things we know that that's going to lead you to victory lane but I'm curious to find out if Beth has a transition point in mind where she might be able to start replacing, inserting, however it would pan out, uh, her own staff. So, yeah, question on that part, but we at least know for the Indy 500, it will indeed be effectively a fifth Penske entry. Mark Hamilton, great question here. You said, great news. Will the team have access to Penske Shocks? Man, I sure hope so. (laughs) considering it's going to be a 15 penske chevy uh yeah i sure would hope uh that this car that they're gonna run would have their own in-house top secret no one else can have them uh dampers so uh yeah uh, cheekily yes uh, of course mark yes no doubt no question uh ryan terpstra how you doing pal it says npa made a bold statement in support of simona for your guest interview I said she's one of the best drivers in the past 10 years without a victory. Also adds, give me three names to put on that list. He says, for hashtag me personally, number one would be Robert Wickens, number two would be Pato Award, and number three would be Simona. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I can't argue with any of that or, or the order of the list as well. Pato, we know, is not going to be on that list for very long. I was going to say Marco, but that was going to be a really bad joke, and I shouldn't because that would be unkind. And we try not to be unkind here. I don't know if anyone else really jumps out outside of the three you've listed. I mean, again, I don't really consider Pato because that's going to happen soon. But I mean, between Wiki and Simona over the last decade, you know, I'm not saying that there weren't some favorites where you're like, oh boy, I'd love to see them win, but they didn't i mean if we want to throw out the boy in a better team or if the situations were better than they were uh gabby chavez uh jack Hawksworth, ed jones um you know there certainly we could probably drum up a few more tristan vautier no doubt that guy could be a race winning driver for sure uh connor daly let's throw connor in right um Zach Veach. I mean, we could probably run a pretty long list here, but I do like the Wiccans in P1, Simona in P2. Robbie as well, we know, minus the crash. I mean, the guy'd probably be a champion by now, if not having finished second or third in the, uh, in the standings and getting close to one. So yeah, I think you're onto something there. Uh, let's see. Justin Holmes, you sent this one in, and I got to admit, I... I I took a couple breaths because I was like, all right, dude. Anyway, I love you. Uh, You said, aside from doing your part with weekly shows, how come there aren't any reporters at testing? Where's the content? Where's the hype? Ah, my brother, Justin, are you aware by chance that this little industry that I work in, that being motor racing reporting, motor racing media is... On its knees, if not halfway into the ground, being buried, brother? Maybe not. So that's why I was like, okay, maybe Justin just doesn't realize. Uh, I am one of many who probably was on the brink of no longer having a way of uh, supporting my family. Because especially with COVID hitting and advertisers doing what advertisers do, which is... Uh, When times get hard, they have to look at the programs that are most impactful and valuable and then possibly pull away from some where they say, we could probably live without that right now as we have to tighten our belts. Um, Just sharing, brother, like racing reporters, your favorite racing websites and or magazines, some of them are gone permanently as a result of COVID and the rest are Getting by by digging into the couch and finding whatever loose change is left. So, the reason that folks aren't being put on planes and booking hotels and rental cars and doing all kinds of things that cost a lot of money to go and cover testing is because the industry is trying not to crumble and fail. And go the way of the dinosaurs because there's so little money in all places being shared. So that's the main reason. Um, it's the main reason why you probably don't see, I don't know, NBA reporters and commentators being sent to cover practice at their whatever the local team happens to be. And I don't, I'm not talking about just. Someone I'm just saying, like, if we're talking about, hey, should we spend a lot of money to go and cover a practice session tends not to be something that you see a big full production done in most sports. Um, So when we have a private test day at Sebring and there are what, six cars, seven cars on track on Monday and then at what, I think eight or nine on Tuesday It's a private test, first of all, just a little bit of a background, meaning uh, the track's not open for reporters unless the teams decide to allow them in. It's their test. It's not an open test, uh, an official series test. So uh, as for where's the content, where's the hype, uh, myself and I know a few other IndyCar reporters have for many, many years written test reports, spoken to drivers, uh, filed that content. So if you happen to take a look, you would have seen a Monday and a Tuesday test report. There was also a video done with two Ganassi drivers on Monday. There was supposed to be one on Tuesday with some Andretti drivers, but that fell through unfortunately. But yeah, uh, I'm going to jump on to the next question here in a second, Justin, but just sharing my friend that Uh, unless you know of someone who wants to invest a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, to make these kinds of things happen where lots of folks can fly all over and cover testing throughout the year um, and permissions can be received. I don't know if this question sits so well with me because I can tell you, uh, totally independent of the podcast, uh, I do my damnedest and I know that there are others as well who do to try and bring everyone as much testing content as we can to try and keep interest alive. So um, I don't know. Maybe this, uh, yeah, I'll just move on. Uh Daniel Engleton, Steve Grinstead, two related questions here. Daniel, you start off with saying, how important was this week's Sebring test for a team? Asks, what different programs would a team have for various level of experienced drivers example being ganassi with dixon erickson polo and johnson and steve grinstead adds with that sebring testing what all would be on a team's first of the year testing checklist says also we always hear them testing on the short course would they ever run the long course and what are the major differences um well work backwards here the bumps at sebring are really something that would not suit an indie car that runs I would say not only lower than sports cars on the full circuit but yeah i the car w- the cars would have to have their ride heights raised so significantly to try and deal with the bumps as not to destroy the bottom of the car if not break off parts of the bottom of the car slamming uh into the track after coming down from some of those bumps that just to accommodate the rough part of the circuit they don't use, I think would compromise the overall lap time car handling and effectively kill any value that they would receive from using the full track to learn about the car and gain benefits from that testing. The reason that they use the, quote, short course, which is what I think the full circuit is 3.7 miles, and the short course, I believe, is 1.9, is that 1.9, first of all, is by and large smooth-ish. So the track surface, while it varies in terms of what it is, uh, the the composition of the track surface itself, because there's been a lot of different paving and fixing over the years, It is relatively smooth uh, compared to being super bumpy. It can and does build grip as more rubber goes down. And just sharing for those who don't know, the Sebring short course is where teams go to develop their street course setups. Overstating another obvious thing, street courses aren't exactly sitting ready and available for testing at any point in time. So to try and replicate uh, what they can't do in terms of testing on a street course, they go to Sebring, use the short course. Uh, It's not super fast. There are some stretches where the cars get up to a decent top speed, but I'm talking about there aren't a ton of true high, high high-speed corners they go through. So that actually replicates quite nicely the dynamics found at a street course where By and large, the corners tend to be slow to medium speed. That's what the short course offers. So that's what they end up doing there. And so coming back to Daniel's question and then your question, Steve, on the checklist, this beyond starting off with the drivers you mentioned, Daniel, and anyone else who hasn't either been in the car uh, since the offseason or if it's a driver that's brand new to the series, like Jimmy Johnson, you're going to spend the first outing, maybe the second outing if necessary, just running through systems checks, making sure that everything's functioning as expected, all the sensors are talking, everything is giving back quality information. Make sure that the car you haven't run, and especially in some cases with drivers who've never been there or are limited on IndyCar experience, going to go out, get a feel for the car, feel for the track, all the engineers going to make sure that everything's working properly within it. Mechanics will pour over the car, check everything, make sure no issues found. And before too long, then they start getting into testing. Now, what are they doing with testing? As I mentioned, street course is what they are looking to try and learn about, improve, and perfect. So for those who have experience whether it's a Dixon or an Erickson or whomever else was there. They're not going to be farting around too much with learning the track or anything else. They're going to dive straight into that checklist about, here's something that we've done arrow-wise, damper-wise, anti-roll bar, etc. Here's geometry changes. Just These are all the things that we want to try. We've come up with during the off-season. We now want to go run and see if indeed they do the thing that we hope, which makes the car better and or faster. There's another aspect to this as well on that checklist, and that's the correlation. So in most cases, teams will have spent some time on some form of shaker rig that replicates the track, replicates uh, track surface and whatnot, bounces the car around, and on the actual real chassis that they're using for that shaker rig they will install dampers that have a build specification that they think is going to be awesome run it through the shaker rig get back the data they'll run multiple again whether it's tons of different shock builds uh suspension changes etc etc they'll do all these things gather information and data come away with a refined list when they get to go actual track testing and say well this did this looked like it just didn't work at all Uh, on the shaker rig eh, we won't forget it but it's not going to be top number one on the list for us to try here's the condensed list of things that really seemed promising on the shaker rig let's go out and run through those various changes we're going to bolt this on go do a run we're going to bolt that on go do another run and try and correlate and see Uh aha well the the shaker rig said a And the driver said, A, and the data kind of delivered what we expected. Cool. This was a gain. This is a good thing that matched what we saw and call it off-track testing correlated to on-track testing. Great stuff. There'll be other things where you go, yeah, it showed promise. It looked like it would. We tried it in the real world, and the driver said, nope, (laughs) ain't happening. That ain't it. So it's a lot of that kind of stuff, Steve. The correlation side is certainly something to Consider back to close here on Daniel's opening item, there's going to be a very different program for a guy like a Jimmy Johnson or whomever else a uh, Cody Ware who might have zero experience uh, either in an indie car or at that track or is just building limited knowledge do you think they would be throwing super complex, please compare and contrast this setup change uh, to another one, Jimmy. While he's still learning to drive an car, Absolutely not. This would be a less complex thing. Not saying they did not make any changes and would not make any changes. Just saying that you're going to send the experienced ones out to come back with the most valuable info possible. The ones who are still learning, you're going to just focus on their development, by and large, without throwing too many things their way in terms of variables. Where are we going next? Uh, Hrishi Deshpond said, Hey, saw some recent tweets from Jimmy Johnson that looked like he was testing a formula regional America's car. Uh, and also now that he's at Sebring with his IndyCar, car, how's his off season testing and training going? When I last spoke with Jimmy, he was really happy. Uh, what I need to do, and this is on my to do list. Actually, it's not, <laughs> Okay. Time to bust out the, the Sharpie and the notepad. I am making a Jimmy Johnson follow-up note. Need to check in with Jimmy. Also need to check in with his mentor driver coach, Dario Franchitti, to get his take on that. So I know that Dar and I discussed doing occasional stories, kind of follow-up things on how Jimmy's evolution is coming. Think I should get my button gear, Rishi and get you a better answer for that. Matt Philpott. Uh says Marshall, what do you see as the biggest drawback to come from the decision to not have a formal spring training testing session this year? Lots, many. Um overstating the obvious yet again here, Matt. With changes to how Indy Car and probably many other series as well, I don't want to hang it all on them, but in changes to IndyCar's overall approach to testing in recent years, this is also pre-COVID, so it's not all something that the bad coronavirus brought to us, Um, we've had a big reduction in private test days. So teams, simply put, don't have that many opportunities to go and learn about the cars, develop their drivers, and so on and so forth. We know that there are a couple extra test days made available for rookies, so that's great. It's still a very small number of track testing opportunities. So the lack of spring training being two, three days at wherever it might be, would have been this year or next year, who knows? It's just a numbers game, Matt, of you talk to teams and say, hey, what's the thing that you're bummed out about most? And it's the... Yeah, uh, we're going to show up at Barber this year, um, last year it being Texas, and we're just not feeling like we're really on top of things, have had enough mileage to get ourselves or the drivers or the whomever up to speed. So effectively, this race coming up or the early part of the race season, that's going to kind of sort of be our bulk of on-track learning and we're going to have to try and go from there it's so always 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 matt you have teams drivers too but teams are the ones who are most sensitive to this let's say look <laughs> it's our job to be the best we can possibly be and if you're taking away open test days, call them free test days, ones that we aren't having to burn from the limited number of private test days you grant us, well, uh, we're not going to be at our full potential. So that's not a place that they're ever going to be comfortable with. As you've heard me mention, Matt, probably many times, I am a fan of chaos and teams showing up with less than full, full preparation, not feeling fully studied can lead to some pretty good racing because some of the ones you don't expect to perform do some of the ones that you go guarantee they're going to be on the podium, totally out in left field, got it wrong because they were not afforded the opportunity to test enough to their liking to feel like they were totally on top of their game. So I think that's just simply going to be it. Team's not happy. Possibly fans being happy, uh, you know, wouldn't be a surprise. Like I said, sometimes the stuff actually makes for better racing. And that's an argument that I've started to hear IndyCar suggest a little bit. Like, yeah, I know you don't want to give it up, but hey, it's not as if the racing was bad last year. So, yeah, I'd say that's it, my man. Got to take a sip of coffee here, by the way. Eric Harkrater, interesting Submission from you, my friend. It says, Marshall, is it me or did I not see a single team and only one or two drivers post anything recognizing Martin Luther King Day? And he says, given the, quote, drive for diversity program, how is that possible? Are they utterly tone deaf? Is this, at any point, a willful and deliberate avoidance of the topic based on a directive from senior people involved in the series? What the bleep? Well couple things come to mind here, Eric. I didn't look, didn't pay attention, probably still (laughs) didn't care. Um, There's a little bit of the keeping up with the Joneses, making, keeping up with appearances side to things like this. And that's something that I... I'm just not too keen on from a personal standpoint. From a professional standpoint, how's this? Totally get where you're coming from. Hey, IndyCar, collectively, you seem to have made a pretty consistent statement since middle of last year that you want to be seen and recognized as a series that really does embrace everyone and wants to opt in to diversity and cultures that previously uh, you haven't. And so would it then be expected for either the series or teams or drivers on a, a holiday that is very important to black folks in particular, but I would hope any and all Americans as well. Would you think that there'd be some sort of collective something, an email that went out beforehand saying, "Hey, uh, Monday is Martin Luther King Day. Uh, please consider sending something that is positive or whatever." Whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that's a serious place. Um, maybe it should be. I don't. Again, I'm not making any kind of statement as for whether they should or shouldn't. And that's not because I'm dodging the topic. It's just, I don't know if it's their place to urge their team owners and drivers to comment on one day when in theory, there are many days, uh, this day, that day, whether it's a holiday or not, um, you could probably send that same request almost every day. Um, and I'm not, being flippant uh, and i'm not diminishing the seriousness of your query here just saying this could probably be almost a daily thing um it doesn't surprise me and i'm taking your word on this eric again i y'all might have heard or listened if you remembered or whatever after george floyd was murdered uh and then we had what was it the blackout tuesday was it or whatever everyone posted the black squares like you know i'm not saying it means anything about me but i didn't uh because it just it's a symbolic thing that doesn't change anything it you know so drivers wanting to be seen as caring or woke or whatever Uh, by making sure they all line up and say something about Martin Luther King. I would rather, Eric, I'd rather know whether folks are just kind of ticking the box to be seen as someone who does something they think they should do so they look good to people or don't because they don't know or just don't care. And do I hope and wish and desire that more IndyCar teams and drivers cared about such things and wanted to genuinely support, pick a thousand different things that Martin Luther King represented or wanted to see uh, infused throughout the world for our betterment, of course, but I'd rather know who or what they are about in a very genuine manner by not doing so than just faking it to look good. So yeah, um, your sensibilities, my sensibilities, uh, they certainly aren't shared with everyone and other people's sensibilities are things that we might not, uh, share or grasp or fully understand. So do I think that with the race for equality and change being a new core component of IndyCar that it would have been a pretty good vehicle or easy entree for those who've never weighed in on such things, never really thought to post something or share maybe not a quote or a picture, but actual something real like, Hey, you know, growing up, I heard Martin Luther King's name anytime and, you know, read about him in school or whatever, in whichever class, but, you know, never had a real direct connection. But, uh, in later in life or recently I've learned that dot, 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 I read this thing that he said, and it really resonated with me. And now I look at something differently or have a change viewpoint on something like that would be amazing. But just the, let me cut and paste somebody else's JPEG with a quote of him saying something like those things tend not to do much for me. So not totally surprised that we did not see a response apparently from most on Monday. Uh, Vincent Martinez and Jerry Robert of How you doing, Jer? How you doing, Vincent? Questions about Romain Groschon. We need a good nickname for him, don't we? And not a bad one, right? Not something fire-related, but Romain Groschon. We know that's a name that's going to be murdered by just about everybody speaking it into a microphone, myself included. We need to come up with a nickname. So, for those of you who are. Keen on such things, respond here on the good old book face or the tweeters or the whatever. We need a nickname or just a new name. We need a, a really terrible Americanized version of Romain Groschon to help uh, some who just are not going to be able to uh, get the Frenchy part. Uh, Vincent says, What's the fascination with Romain? He says, He has a very unimpressive resume and often wasn't the fastest Haas driver. What gives? Uh, Jerry says, if Romant does indeed sign with coin, what are reasonable expectations for him in 2021? Well, so Vincent, your question, uh, I, you and I are absolutely got each other eye to eye. We are thinking the same thing, asking the same thing, wondering the same thing. I know that he has some oh, diehard fans, which is great. But I've thought of Romain more of F1 Marco Andretti than anything else. And that's not meant to pick on Marco. It's meant to say that, like Marco, Romain has a prodigious amount of talent, an exceptional amount of talent. No one has ever questioned how capable, he is of being excellent connecting with that excellence and therefore producing regular excellence that has been the short circuit so you can point to that year he was at the lotus team which evolved into the renault team um You look and look at that one fine year as the standout one, just as we have that one fine year with Marco. I think it was, what, 2013? We finished fifth in the standings, and you go, whoa, look at that. See? Finally, it's here. We knew it. And then you don't really see it again. Um, I'm with you. I think he's a lovely guy. Uh, There's been a huge response to him after the big crash and fire. I think a lot of folks who were less sympathetic to him are now more sympathetic and want to see him succeed and win. Maybe we're just kind of written off as as a bit of a role player in F1 compared to a true leading talent. So he has a lot of hearts and minds with him. What he doesn't have is a resume that says, oh, yeah, This guy, boy, it's just always some sort of time and opportunity where bad luck, boy, you know, always wrong time, wrong team, wherever it was. The thing we know about F1 is, as you mentioned here, saying he often wasn't the fastest Haas driver. With F1 being so segmented from a competitive standpoint, teams often being in their own class, right? Eh, Boy, they're off a little bit. So, all we can do is compare one driver against the next. Had Roman dominated Kevin Magnussen last couple of years, and we could say, all right, well, clearly the guy, you know, we know Kevin's a badass, and he, Roman's just owning him. Wasn't the case. We certainly had races where Roman was better. So, I'm not saying that he wasn't beating Kevin at any point in time, as I try not to burp into the mic. Uh, <laughs> But this certainly, to your point, Vincent, was not a situation where Roma owned Kevin, and that's why there is a fascination with him now. we got to get him over here to IndyCar. Dale Coyne, as i probably mentioned too many times, he is a stargazer when it comes to European talent. If there's a driver leaving F1, if there's a young F2, GP2, F3000 back in the day, Driver who did well and wasn't going to make it to F1 and or look like they had a budget just clamoring to get on the phone. That's his thing, right? Uh, he, that's, his, that's his fascination. Lo and behold, Romain Grachon uh, looks like uh, going to be a, a positive beneficiary of Dale's fascination. Uh, Jerry, you ask about expectations, not knowing yet what his calendar would be. Again, we, it sounds like it's not going to be full-time, but I think mostly full-time. Does that mean he won't be doing the ovals? I mean, again, we're assuming probably the case, but we'll see. Um, I think it's going to be a massive boom and bust year, just like it has been for Roman for many years in Formula One with the difference being brand new car brand new tracks, brand new, everything hasn't raced with the majority of the people he'll be going up against. So he doesn't know their racing style and attitudes. If I try and go down late under braking inside this person, will they close the door on me and wipe the nose off my car and ruin my race or they let me go through? He doesn't know these things. He's been a bit mistake prone as we know. So that certainly isn't a good thing, but I expect him to tear up a lot of equipment, and I also expect him to have a couple of really impressive runs. It's the same kind of thing, Jerry, I'd say about most drivers coming over with no IndyCar experience whatsoever for the first time, so it's not totally unique to Romain. But I would say that his resume, once again, points to the fact that consistency has really been an infrequent friend and so if we're just going on trends Takuma Sato comes to mind right know that he's smoothed things out mostly in the last couple of years but you know Takuma's speed was never in question same as Romain the fact that he's there some weekends and totally gone the others you don't even know he's there definitely something we can attach to Romain the two of them having their hapless moments, definitely say that's something they have in common. Romance showing up, going to have a lot of boom and bust, man. And we're just going to have to find out whether it's more of one than the other. Uh, But consistency, uh, if that were to be the thing we're talking about at the end of his rookie year, that would be a welcome, welcome surprise. Well, so much for it still being morning. It's almost 7 p.m. on a Friday night, and I am just finishing up the last bit of work after a pretty busy day trying to cover the roar before the 24 IMSA test remotely and do a lot of other content as well. So no arguments, no complaints, no anything there. Just getting to it a little later than expected to finish up this episode. Where do we go next? Uh let's see. We're gonna go to Nathan Wolfel. Hey Marshall, hope you, Miss Pruitt, and the cats are doing well. Indeed we are. This is actually a cat free close to the show though. Not sure where the monkeys are. It says I spent a lot of time watching the Chili Bowl this past weekend, and I have two questions. Alright, I'm scared because I don't know a lot about it. I know what it is. I just do not really spend any time watching it this year. So it's great to see a handful of drivers with IndyCar ties competing in your opinion. Why aren't there more of them? Is it simply because most of the up and comers cut their teeth in carting and junior open wheel rather than dirt track? Mm, I'd say that there are some that have awesome and amazing curiosities. And I would say the vast majority that aren't there either don't have a sincere interest You ask most and they'll say, oh, yeah, that looks great. I'd love to. That'd be really cool. But it's one of those things where it's like, hey, if you go out of space, would you? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You bet. They're not actively trying to make it happen. So there's that. There's another thing. Maybe there's a little bit of alignment here. I tend to see the younger... Not married, don't have kids, uh, don't have a lot of adult responsibility type IndyCar car drivers showing up over the years, recent, very recent years. I think there could be something there, you know. If you're Ryan hunter Ray and have 19 kids and live in Florida, are you really going to drop all that at 38 years old or whatever uh, to go and do the Chili Bowl? Eh, maybe not. If your willpower, making hourly face replacement videos uh are you going to leave your son and wife and leave north carolina to go do that no probably not just continue down that list so i think that's probably one of the bigger reasons why you don't see a lot more drivers rocking up to the chili bowl uh you also say i noticed a large banner in the tunnel advertising indycar in st louis are you aware of any ties between the promoters of the two events? Was a banner just a strategic ad placement? I have no idea, but I do know that the amazing folks, genuinely amazing folks at what the hell do they call themselves? Uh, worldwide technologies, raceway, AKA what I will forever call gateway like many others, just as I call my home track Sears point instead of Sonoma raceway or Laguna Seca instead of weather tech, whatever it's called, uh, Yes, all I know is they are among the best, if not the best, of all the IndyCar circuits to promote their event. So I didn't see it. Thank you for alerting me to it. Doesn't surprise me because that's how they get down. Uh, Let's go to Northern Penguin 01. How you doing there, pal? Any rumors or news in potential Indy 500 entries? Drivers like Stefan Wilson, maybe Veach, Askew, or Ferrucci. Heard nothing about Ferrucci. Would imagine that if he finds money, I know that the coin team is certainly open to running him for sure. He's been their star the last two years at the 500. I know Oliver Askew is continuing to work on trying to make something happen in IndyCar. Really do hope. I hope he gets another shot uh, because if he doesn't this year, uh, that's one of those things where I wonder if the door is just going to close permanently. Haven't heard anything about Zach. Same thing, I hope as well. Steph Wilson, I need to check in with Steph, actually. It's been a little while since we've caught up, so yeah, it's a, it's a lingering thing for Steph where, man, you come as close as he did in the last outing and you just always want to go back, but I don't know where he's at budget-wise or opportunity-wise, so I think I got a lot of nothing for you right there, sadly. But I'll also mention that here, what, the third week or so of January, usually not the time where we start getting a lot of like, oh boy, this deal is on fire. We still haven't completed the full-time IndyCar uh, driver roster, much less dive into who's going to do what at the Indy 500, but that we'll be picking up here shortly. Uh, Lori Carter, you asked, does Sarah Fisher still drive the pace car or is it mainly Oriole Servia? I only know of Oriole. So if Sarah is, then I am ignorant to her ongoing pace carriage, lorry, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, only aware of that being the Oriole Servia. Uh, Ian Keyworth, MP, any news on Alex and recovery? Heard some media reports you showing signs of improvement, but what are your sources saying? Um, I mean, I wish I could tell you, Ian, that I somehow had sources telling me something that no one else had. Um, but... Yeah, I I am not as well connected directly to Alex in a time like this where I have, let's see, I have no doubt that if I wanted to, I could call a couple of people and probably stay right on top of every little thing. I choose not to because I don't feel like that would be a smart or good thing uh there are enough pieces of information coming out from alex alex's family and those who are aiding in his recovery to make it not really something that i feel a need to intrude upon if that's a way to put it now when we hopefully get alex back to a hundred percent will i absolutely call him or email him or otherwise directly yes but just sharing Little hashtag me personally approach here, Ian. Uh, his family, without a doubt, his amazing wife, his just his people, been going through enough pain and stress as it is to have my brain say, "Don't be someone adding to it," because the information that is coming out is at a frequency and of enough substance to warrant just staying back so i know that doesn't answer the question as for if i have what my sources are saying i'm not pursuing additional sources uh let's say let's go to ross porter hey ross this is marshall for hashtag me personally jerry hildebrand's racer article concerning the indy lights autonomous challenge hit the nail on the head automation to reduce human workload and air is a fantastic thing we see every day and things like passenger cars and airplanes The thought of robot race cars doesn't do anything for me, but I do wonder how automation might be utilized and developed in a series like IndyCar to improve safety without altering the on-track product. I, too, wonder the same thing, Ross. Not something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but I know that I've heard someone like Tim Sindrick tell me he loves the idea of automation probably more on the electrification side. If we think about how in the WEC, how the Toyota TS050 LMP1 hybrids for many, many, many years now have reached pit lane, combustion engine turns off, the full electric propulsion side takes over, so they're not only saving fuel, but they're, traversing pit lane on full electric power. Once the pit stop is done, car drops and takes off under electric power and does not fire the internal combustion engine until it reaches the end of pit lane. His thought, thinking somewhere along those lines, using this upcoming hybrid power plant, using the electric side on pit lane at Indy, uh, for example, but then maybe thinking about some of the other automation robot-minded type stuff that we see with some of the electric vehicles on the road, even just some of the high-end vehicles on the road that do uh, will do autopilot, uh, will help you maintain your lane and lane discipline. And I just remember Tim mentioning, you know, I don't know what we're going to do when we get there, but it does seem like, well, if we're going to have this electric component, we could, in theory, do pit lane on electric power, but what if we went a step further and had sonar, lidar, radar, dar, whatever, dar, um, engaging as well? Just from a safety standpoint, thinking about the Indy Five Hundred, seems like there's a some sort of crash every year of person pulling out and they didn't see the person pulling in, or wh- whatever it might be. Hey, is there a way through all this and you know GPS and whatever else to? Have some form of system where the cars all know to, I guess, social distance and maintain lane discipline and not run into one another using lots of smart computational radar, LIDAR, you name it, DAR, plus electrified stuff. Who knows? Could that be a thing? Maybe. So I'm with you. I don't know all the possibilities, but I know that smarter People than me uh smarter people than i probably are thinking about such things so can't wait to find out what might be coming ross Let's see where do we go next oh it's one of our favorite topics not really uh, uh we got what is this two questions on a similar similar topic uh hey marshall says business dash 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 travel from reddit says, I hope you're doing well. I'm curious to know if the Paul Tracy social media saga has caught the attention of NBC and IndyCar. Uh, Between the drama around him deleting his Twitter account, calling out the r slash IndyCar Reddit subgroup on his social media accounts and arguing with people in the comments section in his Instagram posts as someone who works in PR, this isn't the best image to have around someone who works on national and global level uh, with NBC and IndyCar. I will also roll the next part of the next question in. There is a little bit of a separate thing here, uh, though, but the Wawa24 from Reddit as well. I love my Reddit screen names. Hey, Marshall, in light of the IndyCar subreddit and Paul Tracy beef, he says, Paul basically called the community scumbag keyboard warriors who are not real fans. Asked, what are some of the weirdest or silliest beefs in IndyCar history? So I'll get to that in just a second. Uh to the primary question from business dash 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 travel. IndyCar and NBC have always been made aware of this. So I haven't spent a lot of time trying to actively keep my memory charged of what when he's posting the shithole countries thing or whether he's which time he's been air quote hacked. And then the other time he was hacked and then this and then that and the right I I haven't documented all that to really keep the timeline fresh in my head, but I can tell you that there is no possible way that these items have not been flagged and raised and sent to NBC sports when they have happened. and I know that uh, because good Lord, how many people tagged? nbc sport at nbc sports or similar uh in each of these instances it's kind of normal in such things someone says something that pisses off more than one person on social media you tend to get some form of calling out piling on or whatever i'm not saying the people who are mad are wrong and aren't or are doing anything they shouldn't. I'm just saying this phenomenon, whether it's racing or any other facet of life on social media, it's kind of the way it goes. So I'm absolutely positive. His employers have known about this for a long time. IndyCar is not an employer of his, by the way, they're just the recipient of his services as he's hired by NBC sports. Mentioned this many times on the show. I'll just reiterate it in case some don't know or haven't heard it before. Uh, Paul is within NBC Sports, the equivalent uh, of a made man, right? Uh, he is, he's under the golden shield of NBC Sports' highest most people uh, who believe him when he says he's hacked, who've got his back, who are his ride or die. And I'm just telling you, that's a thing that anybody with their whomever their employer happens to be would dream of having. So if you have a employer who says, whatever, I, you're, we got you. You're ours. We're not letting you go. It's a dream scenario. It might even in some situations embolden a person to say, or act or do things where you go, wow, man, that's, Oh boy. Uh, How are you doing that, not facing repercussions, as has been posed in this question and many other times on the show? Well, that's the dream answer. When an employer has your back so much that you can do almost anything and not face any repercussions, would you then be the least bit concerned about calling people scumbags and shithole this and what, right? Just going double barrel blasts at all times. Well, there's a reason why you would do that because you know, you're not going to get called out for it from the people who employ you. So that I would think would be a pretty big comfort zone to say and act however you want. So that's the thing that maybe just, is hard for folks to reconcile. Hey, you, this person acts, says whatever does stuff that I think should result in a huge blowback, but it doesn't. Well, if it doesn't, it's very possible that person knows there's going to be no blowback. So therefore fire away. So there's the answer. Um, As for some of the weirdest or silliest beefs in IndyCar history, let's see. Some of these, some of these I can't go into detail on because they are people who are still in the paddock. Tell you, and this is generalism. It's been a strange thing to talk with a driver and have them absolutely make it plain that they cannot stand a teammate. Just get out the knife and there's just barely any chunks left. They get cut up so bad. And then it's not just the seeing the teammate and grinning and being two-faced. It's the oh, wow, that's a different level of being a sociopath. It's the, when asked about that teammate, and, hey, I've heard the two of you might not be super close, or there might be, oh, what? What? And then just 50 pounds of BS piled on top of it. We're the best, and buddy, buddy, and gosh, I can't, I mean, I... I'm thinking of changing my first name to their first name. That's how much I love them. Um, Just on and on and on. So I know that, I don't know if it's a beef so much or weird, but I receive that stuff in that vein where I'm like, I know that if you could and no one else would see it or know about it and the person would heal up and return to the paddock and no one would ever know, you would beat the living crap out of them. Just waste that person. And yet you put, you don't just pretend you make an active effort to create this amazing false narrative that this person, again, somewhere between your mother and Jesus is where this person stands in reverie in your heart. Um, I've seen that happen a couple times. Funnily enough, I've seen one driver do it more than once with more than one teammate. And it's just like, wow, yeah, uh, okay, dude, you're wacky, wacky, wacky. So that's one for sure. Um trying to think what else. Are there any that I can mention where it's... No, that's one of the problems, the Wawa24, of... When I started doing this, it was mid-2000s or so as a reporter, and so there's still way too many of the people involved, whether it's still driving or in other whatever positions. There's just a lot of people around who are still there from the time that I've witnessed some of these things. So with a bit of distance, maybe uh, I'll put some names on stuff because uh, I don't know i won't have to see him every day which means i'm kind of a chicken i don't know uh let's see let's go to easy d 12 15 you mentioned recently wanting to turn wrenches again which of the two would you love to work for as a mechanic dan gurney or harry miller oh man are you serious you're gonna you're gonna throw me in the middle of that one all right uh Wow, it's a great one. So it's kind of Boardwalk Empire versus Mad Men kind of eras. All right. Um, I mean, the Harry Miller side, I think, would be f- genuinely fascinating. Um, but I also know enough about the time where and also Mr. Miller, where he wasn't a very good businessman and he sure went through a lot of people. When I say through, I don't mean chewed up and spat out. I mean, there are some amazing people, Offenhauser, Uh there's some amazing people, uh, Goose, and there's just all kinds of amazing people who were part of the Miller empires who said, Okay, dude, you really can't get your stuff together and your businesses are always failing and you're just it's nothing but drama. We're going to go off and do our own thing over here. Um so I think that would have been a crazy amazing time to work in and it just feels like that would have been more of an adventure than anything. Uh, but I do have a great romantic soft spot for this early you know, for the, these twenties and thirties in particular dawn of, of racing and the Indy 500 and all that, that really jumps out, uh, as something that I would love to be there for, but I mean, come on, uh, Dan Gurney working for all American racers, the, how many people are icons just as a result of working <laughs> at AAR, right? I would have never have become one because I wasn't good enough to. But I can only imagine what it would have been like having the Big Eagle as a boss, Phil Remington as a boss and so many others to learn from. Just the idea of going to name the various sports car, Formula 1 or Indycar races as a mechanic with the Big Eagle, I'd have to go with Dan. I mean, uh oh boy. I would have to go with Dan for sure. (sighs) I think I've mentioned to some of y'all that I actually tried to, I sent a letter asking for a job as a mechanic when I was 16 years, 16, I think, and got a very polite letter back. I believe it was from Gary Donahue uh, who politely said, "Uh, Hey, keep up your school and we hope that all goes well and um, uh, keep in touch, Um, which was, far kinder than they should have ever even bothered to return because at 16 with like 0.01 minutes of racing experience they shouldn't have even opened the letter uh michael brennan you say marshall the prue day our little sub group of listeners has gone rogue and challenged you to a four-man ta- uh, four-man tag team match what drivers team owners or crew members are on your team as always thank you for all you're doing prayers for you and your wife thanks man all right, uh, willpower for sure. He can. He's a physical guy. He's a fighter and a comedian. So I think he would just really bewilder opponents, right? So myself, DJ Willie P. That's two. Uh, who else do we go with here? Because I don't want to just pick the, the the usual stuff. Brian Herda. We're bringing in Brian Herda. He. There's just a zen. Buddhist quality about him a little bit hypnotic in how chill he can be i think he'd be the perfect third player because he'd kind of sort of uh possibly put the opponent to sleep or put him in a sleeper hold one of the two i i think we we got something there for sure and then who's last i'm gonna go with R. lion dyke why that man can curse up a storm. That man, he, uh, granted, I know he's sixty, whatever, but there's just something that tells me a fist bumping, red faced, cursing like a Dutch sailor, Ari Lyandich would just be the disruptor, right? People would be like, "What? What? What are you so mad about? What are you? What are you cursing at me about? And why do you keep fist bumping me and uh, all kinds of bumping me?" So, yeah, I think it'd be. I know it'd be a a tag match. It'd also be a great mismatch. Myself, Will Power, Brian Herta, and Ari Leyendike. That might be the worst assembly ever. And I think, Michael, that i love it for just that reason. All right. We've got a couple more questions. Trying to knock them out as quickly as I can. Where are we at time-wise? Okay. Uh, James Lau, you've sent this in before. I appreciate you sending it in again. James says... Occasionally, you talk about the demographics of IndyCar's true fan base. Older white males being a majority of the crowd and TV viewers, not talking about the occasional fan or someone who attends because they scored free tickets, but the true hardcore fan. Got it. Because I've been a lifelong IndyCar fan since my early teens, and I grew up on the 50th state. I remember listening to the Indy 500 on the radio, um, so on and so forth. He says, as we chatted before, you know I am of Asian descent, and we're about the same age. So I definitely know that over the years, attending the IndyCar races at Laguna and Sears Point, the other attendees mostly don't look like me, and that's fine. says, I love the sport. and Don't even ask me how I felt when I went to watch NASCAR at Sears Point one time in the early 90s. Oh, boy. Yeah. So uh, I was thinking that since your podcast has gained traction over the years, your listener base must represent the real, true fans. How about this idea? And honestly, something that IndyCar should work on. But how do we do a poll on the demographics of your listener base? Could be as simple as age, ethnicity, state, or country of residence, etc. This would be something really interesting to see. What do you think? Well, uh, I mean, I'm you know I'm open to it, but I'm not the one to demand anyone to do anything, James. Uh, I. Think I've mentioned before I greatly appreciate what appears to be a fairly solid demographic of women who listen and that just makes me beyond happy again obvious statement alert or maybe oversharing alert uh I am so incredibly proud of my wife uh everything that drew me to her everything that i've found in her beyond the beauty and attraction and all of that but just as a person as a woman is her strength her independence her vast intelligence like this is just a kick-ass woman and Then there's everything else that made me say I must, must, must be with her, hopefully. And she was silly enough to say yes, and then here we are. But I mention this because I find something just so compelling about women like my wife who are their own person, fully strong, fully independent, fully everything, and I'll say that that's not necessarily gender specific to women the majority of my closest male friends are very similar if not identical independent minded stand up they're full proud who they are kick ass etc etc you know i don't have a lot of reserved friends ones who are quieter and so on and so this is not stating anything negative about those who are i'm just saying for my sensibilities as a human being, ones who stand proud and are all about personal accomplishment and upliftment and goals and all those things, man or woman, those are the folks I find myself drawn towards professionally or on a personal level. So I welcome and just love the fact that it appears that, I don't know what the demographic percentage happens to be. I don't know how to find out. If we're talking analytics from my podcast, it doesn't provide any of that kind of stuff. It's just, here's how many downloads you got. Here's the general region where they are or the state. And that's about it. Um, But I would hope that we have a solid number of women who listen. Uh, That would be awesome. Awesome. And I do see in the questions that come in that may lead me to believe that this is some or partly true, uh, as for ethnic diversity, religious diversity, uh, sexual diversity, identity diversity, I should say. Um, I would hope that there is something solid and strong numerically there as well. And, that's probably because I'm a guy from a place in the world where that's the norm and what I've grown up with. But I don't know if those things are true, James, because I don't have any tools that I know of to figure these things out. So I'll just say if by chance any of you are still listening at this point in time of the show and heard James's thoughts and I, I do second them. I would love <laughs> I would love for those who want to share who you are, where you're from, whatever if you think that's right or appropriate to do so. I uh, just things that I might have said before, just sharing with you a little bit more of who I am. Growing up, my first best friend was Iranian American. And it wasn't a good time to be Iranian or Iranian American with uh, what happened with the hostage taking. But nonetheless, Amir was my best friend. And although I haven't seen him in forever, I love every single piece of that guy. Uh, my, another best friend by chance was Rocky American and Dan and I, I mean, again, I love that guy to absolute pieces, um, So many of my friends growing up, closest friends, absolutely did not look like me because at least for where I grew up, there were a lot of folks who didn't look like me. And their parents came from countries, South Pacific, Asia, Africa, wherever. And I'm just saying, I know that that experience is not, by any means, is not a universal one. I, by chance, grew up uh, in an area in the Bay area here where my sandy blonde hair in some of the classes that I had in grade school or wherever else I was sticking out. And again, it was never normal. Abnormal to me was never anything other than just life. And so in my head to close on this topic, James, whether it is your fine Asian self or someone that is as white as me or as whatever, like just being around people who are different in color, different in all capacity. Like that's my normal place. Call it happy place. Cause that's what I've known. So probably not a surprise that in my little pea brain, I hope that that's what we have to some degree on the show. And who knows, maybe I'll find out that uh, I'm right or maybe that I'm wrong and I suck and I need to do a better job. Uh, All right. We're going to buckle down and get to the last couple here Ed Joris. You say, did Honda or Chevy prorate the fees charged to their teams in 2020 to reflect the reduced number of races? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't honestly know. I haven't asked. But here's one of the things, Ed. Uh, Asking a major automotive brand about their private financials between themselves and teams, I will inform you that this is something that most just stare back at you or you can assume they do so when they receive an email inquiring about such things and go, really, dude? So I don't know. I'm sure I could ask. I don't know if I want to embarrass myself in front of them since they know they're not going to answer. Uh, let's see. Lawrence Cunningham. Hey, Marshall, love the new week in IndyCar cartoons by Mr. Wark. Any plans on a book from you in the future? Yeah. Summer of 1967 that Dan Gurney uh, had would make a good read. Also saddened, but not surprised by Marco's announcement. All the best to you and Chabrel. Thanks, man. My wife, my amazing wife, by Koinky Dink here, continues to tell me, "Hey, you dork, you need to write a book, whatever it is, get something going." And I don't disagree with her. I am very, very sensitive to the fact that I don't know if much of what I would write would be of any interest to anything other than the tiniest sliver of a readership base. So I'm not a guy that likes to spend a lot of time on something where I don't feel as if it's going to be rewarded. I don't mean rewarded. Like I get a cookie or a lot of money, but I'm a Lawrence. I am a, if my wife were on the podcast, she would tell you that I am a time value guy. Okay, cool. Uh, If this is going to take me 10 hours to do, I'll happily do it. But I want to know up front or have a strong inkling up front that the commitment of those 10 hours will have a positive result in the end. Just spending the 10 and hoping, eh, that's not me. So one of those things where I'm just trying to think about what should I do, what should I write about. If I do something first, the first thing I would do, like not a, Hey, I'm just going to start writing a bunch of things and here's five books. But just like, if I'm going to do something first, I have a feeling it might be more of a photo book, my photography with some interesting, maybe, or amusing captions, more of a look at the picture, but get a story with that picture type thing. So I'm leaning in that direction, but again, uh, me and my wife and my cats might be the only people to buy it uh all right we are what are we down to yeah we're just about ready to say goodbye let me look at the good old clockety clock yeah we're uh we're getting really close to saying goodbye here grant stouter said you got a retro question I was born in 95 so i never saw these in person but what happened to the old low drag wheels did the extra weight not justify continued use it says, I've seen the style of wheel on an Audi Quattro GTO car as well. As a matter of fact, Grant, you did not see that on any of the Audi Trans Am or GTO cars. Those were wheel fans. Those are actual, not aero wheels. Those were constructed items with vanes built into them to act as kind of a sideways propeller drawing air into the wheel to cool the brakes so very different than aero wheels the actual flush aero type wheels especially that we saw in like penske cars like late 80s early 90s and such um i don't remember who made those struggling to remember who made those i think lola might have made made some as well to come with their cars um yeah i don't honestly remember why man i wish i could uh, I should probably reach out and ask that question to somebody. If I remember, I will, uh, and try and get back to on that grant. I don't remember why that came to an end, but yeah, uh, they were cool. I thought they looked great. Uh, I know that they required a lot of extra polishing to keep pretty. So, uh, there's that, but yeah, I'm not totally sure why they went away And if it was a rule-based thing, or if was there a manufacturer that did them primarily, and they went out of business, I don't remember why. I apologize, man. Let's see, Kevin Kerner, all right. Another area where I'm kind of sort of ignorant. MP, can you talk about racing suit technology? Says when I raced 20 years ago, they're pretty heavy, really hot, and any logos I had were patches sewn on uh, via embroidery. Is that still done, or logos printed on the on the suits? How has the tech advanced over the years? I haven't stayed on top of that, Kev. I know that somewhere I have my racing suit from about 30 years ago. And yeah, no need to buy a sauna. Just put it on. It was a Simpson, by the way. Never fit right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, everything that I've seen, they're all printed. I know material-wise that they are crazy lightweight. I have a what is it i've got a couple of suits here uh but yeah the most recent one is a 2019 puma suit and yeah it's pretty darn light and you can tell that without my knowledge of the exact material advancements you can just tell compared to what you and i had back in the day which felt like i don't even know man it it felt like the thickness of a good sandwich (laughs) um yeah this is like crazy thin crazy light and the fact that it can apparently prevent fire from reaching skin for a duration of time that is better than what our old like holy cow we're bundled up like kids going out to play in the snow type thickness it impresses me i just I don't have a good answer for you on what type of materials changed over the years. Also know that if we're fortunate to have any fire suit manufacturers or reps listening to the show, do not hesitate to shoot me an email or visit, uh, social media and reach out and you can learn me cause I ain't done learned enough. Uh, Hey, all right. Our pal, Shauna Oakwood. She says, Hey MP safety question. um, not sure if you know the answer to, but what the hell it says my husband and I were rewatching the eighty one eighty five hundred and they were making a big deal about a tool you used to get Danny and guys out of the car called the Jaws of Life, where they invented for racing and found their way to outside use or vice versa as I recall, it was outside use brought in these were basically fire and emergency uh, tools that gained pretty quick popularity to what we are talking about here with Danny Gaius used on the streets and highways in America to do this exact thing to get people out of crashed road cars. And the application quickly made it to motor racing. That's what I remember. I hope my memory isn't bad, Shauna. Raymond Wong, Marshall, let's go back to Alfa Romeo and their attempt to supply motors for Patrick Racing in 1991. Where did it all go wrong for not only Alf Romeo, but also Pat Patrick, who burned his bridge with Chevy that allowed Bobby Rahal to come in and own the team? Uh he also says P.S. I walk with Elias. Well, I love me some Elias. Look at that. We got a WWE reference here again. Thanks, Raymond Wong. Raymond, uh As I recall. Alfa Romeo was bound and determined to do their own thing in terms of building and tuning and developing their engines. The famous story of Pat Patrick having and using Chevy Power, sending secretly one of those coveted Chevy engines. And Chevy really was hardcore back in the 80s and early 90s about controlling their engine supply who got them you know it was they were so good that they really made an effort to say nope we're staying right on top of this we're we're eh, we're not going to let these get out to anybody so patrick in this clandestine effort to send one of their chevy motors to italy to alfa romeo to have them tear it all down effectively try and copy it uh and that motor still ending up being deficient and explosion prone. This just a pretty simple case, as I recall, of a manufacturer not being as good as they needed to at what they were trying to do. And, you know, I mean this imagine back then when you had Judd with the Honda based Turbo v eight you had Ford slash Cosworth, a little more on the Cosworth side than the Ford at that point at least um and Chevy there's also Buick too, and of those four or five, I mean there's a pretty serious pecking order of quality. the Cosworth side, lots of independent engine builders, right? It wasn't like Cosworth itself in Southern California was building all of them and uh controlling availability. no, they were owned and built independently by and large the chevys were leased right uh for sure but i believe as well there came a point in the 90s i think could be off a little bit on timing where uh vds was building their own and others were build, building their own but um yeah i i wish i could say that i recall there being extreme complexity to the answer here but there i don't think there is they just weren't that good at doing their job and even when they got an example of the best they failed to make it perform like the thing they just copied um yeah and it's as simple as that man i also don't recall them spending a crazy amount of money as well anecdotally that's what i recall um definitely a topic that i always enjoy discussing though because failures in racing Uh, I've had a few I've been the result of a few and so I'm always truly fascinated to learn more about how it all went wrong uh James Bethay, how you doing James I forget where it was but I swear I saw a photo on the good old social medias here somewhere in the last couple days of you and your beautiful son uh James says, did you get to see any of the races in person from the old Cat Thunder car series? Uh, he says, all I know is that some cars were old Indy cars and some were old Can-Am cars. Looked very cool. He says, uh, thanks as always for your time and efforts. Hashtag Prue Day. Eh? I did not get a chance, James, to see the series, but I did get a chance to see some of the cars coming out of the series like a year or two later in various California kind of regional road racing type stuff, SCCA by and large. And they blew me away. They were amazing. And yeah, stuff a, what were they, like 5-liter V8 in the back, making, you know, 600, 700 horsepower, whatever. And yeah, they were freaking awesome. Just ground-pounding, more pure, if you could say, less- technologically laden than the indie cars that they were emulating or, or built from or you know it was a bit of a rogue thing for sure right the series just wasn't popular but the cars were really cool so it was really awesome loving indie cars but also getting to see these as you said converted indie cars with fenders thrown over them all the way back looking a little bit like you know uh prototype sports cars and such and also the uh, km cars as well. They are just missiles. <laughs> they were just missiles and so amazing to watch. Uh, okay, um, let's see. Three to go. Jim Johnstone, hey MP, had a random thought pop in my head when Tadis was selected for the chassis supplier in USF 2000 and Indy Pro 2000. Were there any other competing bids for the contract? I believe so. I definitely believe so. I... I don't know why I'm not remembering who they were. Uh but yeah, I seem to recall there were like two or three others. And it says Delar already did IndyCar and Indy Lights, had arguably the best two leader chassis in the world with their Formula three chassis. It would have seemed like a no brainer for Delar to modify their F three car two suit. Eh yeah, I mean keep in mind there's no desire to try and do a true Formula three car. Um had though if we're talking that sub formula three kind of right up close to formula three and whatnot i would say they own that market globally so if i was picking i probably would have ended up there now granted if i could have gotten swift to do that or uh an american constructor to do that i would have um if painos was still doing open wheel cars then i if i had the power to decide i probably wouldn't went in those directions but yeah tatus did not stand out to me as anything as odd i think my gal my gal I always get that Mc, uh, pronunciation messed up m y g a l e seem to recall they i think they were connected to Brian herda somehow um they were one that i now am recalling and there's one other that i'm forgetting about but when Tadis was chosen for both didn't stand out to me in any way other than yeah great call these are the right people they do good work and end of conversation at least for me jim uh daniel Gil, you are not our cleanup but you are our penultimate questionnaire has there been any interest in former AlphaTauri F1 driver Daniel Kvyat, uh, either from the team side or from the driver himself on making a move to IndyCar, says, hashtag me personally, he has untapped potential and would seem a good fit for an IndyCar seat. Well, my friend, uh, if we were at the pub, this would make for a long and raging, I don't even know if it would be a debate. I feel like I would shout at you. Uh, he has no untapped potential, my friend. We have seen all the potential he has. And he has under-delivered and proven that he does not have enough talent to be more than what he has been. Now, he could have more talent than Lewis Hamilton, I should say. He could, but if we talk about tapped or untapped, he has never been able to access that or access it for more than a fleeting period, maybe a race here or a race there. This is a guy who, for whatever reasons has been a serial underperformer so we've spoken about here in f1 usually it's you and your teammate every car is kind every manufacturer is kind of in their own class and so more often than not you just have to look at how teammates perform against one another and good old Daniel has been outclassed over and over and over again sent up sent back sent sideways sent here sent there and i cannot remember a time where there was a consistent period where he was like wow that guy's going to the top that guy is he's a future champion or just a true star in waiting um it seems to me that Falling out of F1, finally, I've been wondering for many years why he was still there. So I wonder if that's why I've heard zero from IndyCar teams expressing interest in him. Other than, well, if he could bring 6 to $10 million, we'd be interested. But uh, yeah, and I don't, I'm sure he's maybe been asked about IndyCar. I don't know. I haven't read it, but yeah, just there are a couple of IndyCar drivers I could name that I would say think of him as that person, and you'd go, oh, okay, yeah, that's why no one's really chasing him down. But I won't because we're trying to be nice. It's 2021, we're trying to have a good time, y'all. Final question goes to our pal, Hire Lee. Says, hey, is there any update on Jackie Heinricher and her interests in becoming an Indy 500 entrant? Says last I heard, it was going on, it was going to be the '06 uh, car driven by Katherine Leg when Heli when Elia wasn't in it, referring to Meyer Shank. Uh, and a third car for the indy five hundred, I really hope this one happens. The series needs it, and I want it. I haven't spoken to Jackie, so I should to get it straight from her. but I know that I have had conversations very recently uh with two folks that in and around her orbit who have said she's gone a thousand percent silent on this uh nothing like a lot of nothing i don't recall jackie and katherine being truly in the running for the second part-time shank car i know that there have been interests in trying to do cat and jackie for that indy 500 entry you mentioned or for an indy 500 entry mention that would require money and just say that if those who are Pretty close and have a feel for what she might be doing, or saying she's truly just zero, zero communication, zero anything. Um, Maybe she's just working really hard trying to find the money. But usually, if you express an ambition, know that it requires money and have money, you aren't silent. So, not saying that's the answer, just saying I should reach out to Jackie and maybe do either an update or at least get a feel because, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff happening with women in the sport right about now. And it seems like we should be hearing something from Jackie. And I really hope that we do. All right. I am going to say goodbye. We have done a number of podcasts this week, next week, going to be pretty busy week as well. There with the Rolex 24 Daytona coming up, I'm going to have a number of sports car related podcasts captured one recently with our man juan pablo montoya i just call him juan montoya uh or jpm or mr it is what it is and we talk about his european racing plans this year american racing plans and sports car and indy 500 deal and i again i love the guy it's a fun conversation our man joao barbosa former awesome former atlantic driver who's made a long career in sporty cars since i don't know for a really long time let me look at the rest of the list. I've got it right next to me. Why am I not staring at it to help my brain? Uh, Yeah. Well, anyways, there's a lot. So I hope you enjoy those next week. Can't tell you if we're going to do one or two listener Q&As. Knowing that I'm going to be busy with a lot of sporty car stuff, we might just do a single. But who knows? There could be as many as three car driver announcements next week. So who knows? Maybe we're going to have to do two. Anyways, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our little Marshall Pruitt podcast. weekend in car listener Q and a brought to you by Cooper tires, the justice brothers and Toronto Motorsports.com.